Have you ever saw somebody do something and wondered, what are they thinking? Why would they do that? Have you ever said that to someone? You saw someone do something you thought was ridiculous or crazy, said, well, what are you thinking? Uh, perhaps a little closer to home, has anybody ever said that to you? What are you thinking? Why would you do that? There was a story this week that made me think about that. You may have read about this. There were three boys, three brothers in Bolivia, and they found a black widow spider, one of the most venomous spiders in the world. And what these boys did was they purposely poked it with a stick and got it to bite each of them in turn. Now, since it's so venomous and dangerous, they started to have pain, and fortunately their mother was able to get them to the hospital. They each had to spend about a week in the hospital, but they're all all right now. And you, their mother probably said to them, what were you thinking? What are you thinking doing that? But the boys had a, a good reason. You see, they thought that if they were bitten by a spider, then they would become Spider-Man. They would develop superhero powers. Because after all, Peter Parker, he was bitten by a spider, and then he became a superhero. The logic made sense to them. Now, of course, we know there's a difference between a movie and between real life. But we still see in that little example that what we think determines a lot of what we do. Our thoughts are crucially important. What, our th- what we think determines what we do. And the Apostle Paul knew this. We've been reading through the book of Philippians. It was a letter he wrote to a church in the city of Philippi where he's encouraging them to rejoice together and grow together. Even though he's far away in prison, he wants all of them to rejoice and grow together. And an important aspect of growing together as a church, as a follower of Christ, is our thinking, is our mind. At the very end of last week, we kind of entered chapter 4, the last chapter of the book of Philippians, and Paul encouraged them to stand firm as they pressed on toward their heavenly home. And this week, we're going to see what that standing firm looks like. If we're going to stand firm, we need to think about what we're thinking. So with that in mind, let's read our passage for today. We are in Philippians chapter 4. We're looking at verses 2 through 9. Philippians 4, verse 2 through verse 9. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Philippians 4, starting in verse 2. Paul says this, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, or finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, 
whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time we have in your word this morning. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to think about what we're thinking about. Help us, our minds, to not be consumed with bitterness or anxiety, but help us to have right thinking, a right mindset, to have right examples in front of us so that our thoughts, our actions, everything we think and do would honor you. Lord, our prayer is that you would increase, we would decrease, that more people would see more of you and less of us. God, work in our minds so that our thoughts would bring that purpose about. May you be honored by our time together this morning. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So in our text, the first thing that Paul talks about is what not to think about. What not to think about. And the one thing he says we shouldn't think about is bitterness. We shouldn't think about bitterness. Now, bitterness is very serious, but I thought that was a very silly picture, so that's why I included it there. We're not to think about bitterness. We see this in verses 2 and 3 of our passage. Paul is entreating. He's pleading. He's imploring. He's appealing. He's urging these two ladies in the church, Euodia and Syntyche, to agree He wants them to be of the same mind, to live in harmony, to settle their disagreements. He says he wants them to agree in the Lord. They both belong to the Lord. They're both Christians. They both have a relationship with God. So they should have a relationship with one another. In the book of Ephesians, Paul puts it this way. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The Lord's people should live in harmony, and we cannot stand firm as a church when there is disunity. Now, in this case, we don't know what caused the division between these two ladies, We don't even know what the result of that was. Maybe it just made things awkward. Maybe they weren't talking to each other. Maybe they gave each other mean looks from across whatever room the church was meeting in. Paul doesn't seem to care about whatever the disagreement was. He just wants their relationship restored because they are living in bitterness and anger. Now, I know that we can sometimes live there too we can live in a place of bitterness and anger. Sometimes we know why we're there. Oh, that person did that. I remember what they did. But sometimes we can be there and we don't even remember why we're angry at someone. It can be like one of those old-timey feuds that no one remembers how they got started. Or perhaps there was one thing that kicked it off, but it's just completely spiraled out of control. Reminds me of in uh, 20th century World War I, 
that these complex alliances between different countries meant that one murder of one person put the entire world at war with each other. That's the kind of result that can come from bitterness, from anger. And I have to confess, I, I know bitterness. I've been so angry, I've been so hurt that it's consumed every thought of my mind. And it's really like a trap because you want to think about something else. You want to move on, but you keep replaying the hurt, the offense in your mind. You just can't move on. That's what makes it so interesting in this text that Paul's not assigning right or wrong. He wants each of these ladies to make the first move. He says, I entreat you, Odia. I entreat sanctity to agree in the Lord. And so instead of this bitterness, he wants them to think about something he talked about earlier in the book. In chapter 2, he said this, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. It's a challenge to us to love others enough to reach out to them with a desire for unity, with a show of grace. Even when there's offense or difficulty, it's loving them enough to reach out. It's sensing there's a problem and having the God-inspired courage to say, I'm sorry, did I offend you somewhere? And then genuinely apologize for any fault we may have caused. Or even expressing, I'm sorry you feel that way when I said that. That wasn't my intention. Again, in all of this, we're seeing the importance of unity. It's really kind of a major theme in Philippians, although it mostly stays under the surface. Paul wants the church to be a united witness. He also said this to the Ephesians in chapter 4 of that book. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's kind of language we've seen in Philippians, walking in a manner worthy. But what does that look like? Paul says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace. We see the emphasis he put on unity. But the question is, how do we do that? How do we have that kind of unity when we have bitterness in our heart? What should we do instead? Well, what we should do is to seek reconciliation, to seek to restore relationships. That's what he talks about in verse 3. He says, I ask you, true companion, or, or perhaps it should be translated loyal syzygous, he asked this person, this true yoke fellow, to help resolve this difference. But the kind of oddness of the words may mean he has a larger view in mind. Maybe he's looking at the whole church. And it's kind of pointing out to us that reconciliation may require a third party. If you remember a couple months ago, if you've been with us for that long, uh, we were talking through the Sermon on the Mount, and I've uh, talked about the passage there where Jesus is discussing anger. And I talked that we should seek reconciliation, restoration with someone. But it's possible the person we're trying to restore the relationship with won't be interested. 
And I'm not saying we have to force them to do something they don't want to do, but we should still seek it out, put the effort as far as it depends on us. And I want to emphasize that we may have differences and need resolved relationships with other people in our lives, but Paul's focus here is on this church, on this one local church here in Philippi. There were two people who had an issue, and he wants them to resolve it. Reconciliation should happen here. It should happen in the church. Not in the church building, because we're not here, but among our members, those of us who are a part of this body, this outpost, this representation of God's kingdom here in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We should not allow conflict among our church family. After all, we serve together, as Paul says in 3, these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together. They labored side by side with Paul. They worked hard. They strived. They contended in the gospel struggle. That's what makes this so sad. Euodia, Syntyche, they must have done ministry events together. They must have worked together in the past. Maybe they did some type of outreach, but now they are divided and it breaks Paul's heart because he loves the Philippians. He loves their church. The scholar J.A. Motyer said about this passage, if we felt for each other as Paul did, we should soon recognize the scandal of division, the scandal of division. That's why Paul calls the whole church to spring into action to restore this relationship. He talks about Clement, the rest of my fellow workers. And so are we that concerned about relationships in our own church? If we see if we know there's a problem, do we seek to bring people together to restore or we just sit back and let that problem fester? It doesn't directly concern us, so I don't need to deal with it. Now, I'm not saying we should be busybodies trying to fix other people's problems, but if we know there's a problem, then we should talk to at least one of the people involved and gently, patiently encourage them to seek restoration. Not make something happen, but encourage them to be united as Christ has united us. Earlier in this book, in Philippians 1.27, Paul said, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Here it is, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Where we agree on the gospel, there's no room for division. And that's why we have to hold our beliefs that aren't essential. I'm talking about things, not about God, not about Jesus, about the gospel, but hold our other beliefs and passions. We have to hold them with an open hand. That's not saying we don't have conviction. It just means we recognize this is something I can let go for the sake of unity with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Because if we have a relationship with Jesus and someone else does, well, then we have much more in common than we have a difference. Because all of our names are recorded in God's book of life. As he says at the end of verse 3, whose names are in the book of life. Right there with Euodias, with Syncades, with this person named Clement, and every other Philippian believer. This book of life is God's record of those who belong to him. In Revelation 3, 5, where we read that the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments 
And Jesus says, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And what that means is Jesus says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. If we are one with Christ, then we are one together, and we must think that way. Even if a full restoration is not possible on this side of eternity, we can still kill bitterness within us. We do that by making the choice to, even though we were hurt, even though we can't communicate anymore, to still love that person, to still pray for that person, that fellow believer in Jesus Christ. We should always seek that with someone. The truth is that none of us are exactly the same. And if you want to find somewhere you disagree with someone else in the church, you'll find it. We're all different people. There's things I'm sure you disagree with me about. There's things we all disagree about. But the mark of maturity is what we do with that disagreement. What we do with that disagreement. Does it define our thoughts? Does it define our actions? I disagree with this about this person, so I'm not going to talk to them when I'm in church. Or do we move past that disagreement for God's greater glory, for his gospel, for his kingdom? So Paul's telling us that what we're thinking should not be centered on bitterness. And not only should we move past that, we should also move past anxiety anxiety. He gets to this in verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. This is instruction at the beginning of verse 6. And this is the same message that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, 25, he says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Now, I understand how difficult hearing this, do not be anxious, how difficult that is in a time like this. And I have to confess that this COVID-19 coronavirus situation connected with our church, it gave me a greater experience, a worse experience of anxiety than I've ever felt in my life. It wasn't so much that I was afraid of getting sick, though I'm I'm sure there was a little bit of that. No, it was more anxiety about what to do with the church. How can I minister to the people that I'm responsible for? Uh, Should we be together? Should should we not? One night it got so bad, I, I really, I couldn't even sleep. I just couldn't shut my brain down. I kept running and racing with possibilities and thoughts. I couldn't focus on anything. I, I couldn't even pray. I tried. Well, what I finally did was I just sat up and I tried to read the book of Psalms. I got about halfway through it, but again, I couldn't focus. I wasn't really retaining anything that was there. There were other days and other nights where the stress anxiety was so much that I felt like somebody was choking me. Like I felt like I was choking for hours. And I convinced myself a couple times that I couldn't breathe and started almost hyperventilating there. What was happening was the stress and anxiety was so much, it was manifesting. It was coming out as a physical symptom. I was so stressed, so clenched that my neck muscles were hurting and gave that feeling of being choked. 
Now, these kind of things have greatly reduced as time has gone on, but they still pop up here and there. And I share all that not so, you can say, poor Pastor John and be sympathetic. That, that's, that's not my, my purpose, because I realize that some of you may have experienced anxiety far worse than that. And if that's you, if you've had those kind of symptoms or worse for years, I am so sorry that you've gone through that. Uh, even the little bit I did, I know that was rough. And I'm also not sharing this to then turn around and say, but now I figured out a solution and I'm never anxious anymore because that's just not true. Now I can read the words that we'll talk about in just a moment that Paul says, I know them and I know they're true, but I still need God's good grace in my life in order to practice them. Now I'm sharing that to let you know that if you struggle with anxiety, you're not alone. You're not alone. I understand, and more importantly, God understands, and He's the one we can rely on. Psalm 94, 19 tells us, when the cares of my heart or when my anxieties are many, God, your consolations, your comforts cheer my soul. Because the truth is that God has provided a way out. So we should not be anxious, but what do we do instead? Look again at verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So what do we do? Well, we can pray. We can ask for help. That's what that supplication or petition is talking about. And we can thank God for what he has done for us. And if we do that, well, then God promises his peace. As he says in verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses understanding. I really like how the New Living Translation puts verse 6. It says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. But of course, if you've wrestled with anxiety, you know how difficult that is because when we're anxious, what we want to do is we want to run away into a corner to hide where no one and nothing can see us. Instead, what Paul's telling us, what this passage is saying is that we should boldly go before God It's incredibly hard, I know, but we need to come before him and say, God, I need your help with this right now. I'm worried, I'm concerned about this, whether it's about money, health, or what I'm supposed to do in this situation. God, this concerns me. I am anxious about this. And as we're doing that, we're praying for greater trust in God. And then we're able to pray with thanksgiving. We're able to thankfully accept the circumstances that he puts us in. And when we're thankful, that helps bring us to that inward peace, or at least it moves us toward it. Again, scholar J. Amatier talks a bit about what Thanksgiving is. He says, Thanksgiving addresses itself to the worrying question, why? The question, why has this happened to me? And Thanksgiving answers by pointing to the great doer of all. It's pointing us to God, who never acts 
purposelessly and whose purposes never fail. Friends, the truth is that God always has a purpose. And that means we can always be thankful. That's what he means here when he's saying prayers with supplication and thanksgiving. It's saying, God, I need your help. God, I don't know how, but I know that you have a purpose in this. So thank you. Thank you for putting me in this. Thank you for being with me now. Help me to see how you want me to grow. Paul would talk about this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Sometimes people ask questions, well, what's God's will for me? Well, I can say definitively to every single person I meet that God's will for you is for you to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and have thanks in all circumstances. You might say, well, that doesn't really apply to me. I'm going through a rough situation. Well, have you thought about the people Paul's writing to? That verse was to Thessalonians. We're reading a book to Philippians. Both of these churches were being persecuted for their faiths and beliefs. Some thrown in prison, some to death. And I think few of any of us are experiencing that right now. But yet Paul's instruction is still to rejoice always, to pray, and to give thanks. Or in our text, in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. We can pray about anything. We can pray about everything. God already knows it. And we might say, well, then why should I pray it? God already knows it's going on, but he wants to hear our heart. He wants us to trust and rely on him. As Proverbs 16.3 says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Now, I'm not saying there that it'll be easy, that everything will work out right away, but committing our plans, our goals, our desires to God is still the best place to be committing it in prayer. God, this is what I'd like to do, but I'm leaving it before you. That's why Paul will say in Romans 12, to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation and suffering, be constant in prayer. Sometimes people get hung up on that. We read in the other verse, pray without ceasing or be constant in prayer. Just means we're constantly in an attitude of God. I'm relying on you and everything. I'm not depending on myself, but relying on you. And if we're there, that helps move us out of that place of anxiety. And it gives us peace with God. Verse 7 talks about it. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God's peace surpasses, it transcends, it exceeds anything that we could understand or comprehend. It guards, it protects, it governs our hearts, which are the source of our feelings and our emotions. It guards that. It also guards our minds, the source of our thinking, our pursuits, our desires. Everything, every situation, all of us is God's. It belongs to him. He guards and protects it. That This word also may be Paul kind of slightly referring to where he is. If you remember where Paul is when he's writing this, he's in prison. He has physical guards locking him in. But he's saying, those guards aren't in control of my life. God is in control of my life. And that means I don't have to worry, even if I'm here in prison. As the prophet Isaiah put it this way, you keep him 
God, saying to God, God, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. True peace then is a gift of God. And it's a gift that comes through a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said it this way in John 14, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now, when we're talking about peace, it's kind of is talking about the peace where we mean the kind of inner rest and inner calm. Yes, that's going on here. God gives that to us as we rely on him. But much more important, these words are pointing to our eternal salvation, to peace, a restored relationship with God. Because if you do not know Jesus, then you will not know true peace. The reason your mind is plagued by bitterness and anxiety if you're not a Christian is because you are stuck in your sin. You're an enemy of God. You are not at peace with him. And true peace, true calm, that can only come from him. Your sins have pushed you away from God. You've rejected him. But that's why he sent Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died on our behalf. He rose from the grave, defeating that sin and rebellion, buying you back to God. If you believe in him, if you turn from your sin, if you trust in Jesus, then you can know a peaceful relationship with God. And if you have that, then you can have peace in every other relationship. That's why for Christians, Paul gives us a very similar instruction to what we're reading in the book of Colossians. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body and be thankful. Now, Paul's talked a lot about what we shouldn't do and and some other ways to think about it. But in this passage, he also talks a lot about what we should think about, what to think about what to think about. And his major emphasis here is on a right mindset, a right mindset. What we should think about is having a right mindset. And he breaks us down into a couple of components. You see, there's three, if you're following along on the outline that's available on our website or that you can get if you get our uh, midweek emails. And so the first kind of component of this is in verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. It's joy. Joy is part of having a right mindset. Joy that comes from God. Paul wants the Philippians to always have joy, to be full of it. And he's told them this before. In chapter 3, he said, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for." you. This joy, this rejoicing is so important. Paul brings it up again and again throughout this book. If you remember, one of the themes of this book is rejoicing together. It shows up all throughout it. Sean McDonough, a scholar, explains what this joy means, though. He says, the joy that Paul calls for is not happiness that depends on circumstances, but a deep contentment that is in the Lord based on trust in the sovereign living God. And that therefore is available always, even in difficult times. 
Look closely at the words of our text. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Not just be happy for happiness sake, but rejoice in the Lord. That's why Jesus should be our first and foremost joy because he is constant. He never changes. And so our joy can always be firm if it's set on him. That's why we can praise him. We can rejoice in the Lord. So joy is part of having a right mindset. Something else that's a part of right mindset is being considerate. Considerate. Verse 5 talks about this. Let your reasonableness or your consideration be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Being considerate is a disposition. It's an attitude that seeks the best for everyone else around you. It's an attitude that's essential if we're going to have a community, if we're going to have unity in the church. Other translations might have gentleness, graciousness, forbearance. It's living with a concern for others, something that Paul's talked about already in this book. The reason I chose the word considerate is I think that's one we understand its definition better. If we say to be considerate, it means to consider, to think about somebody else. That's what gentleness means. It means thinking about somebody else, treating them with the respect that they deserve. And when we do that, when we put others first, we're considerate of them. That helps with both bitterness and, and anxiety. It helps with anything we're thinking about. Because if we're focused on somebody else, how can I help that person? We're not going to spend as much time in our head being bitter or being anxious. And having this attitude is important because Paul says the Lord is at hand. Jesus will return as judge. He will hold people responsible for their deeds. In the book of James, he says, you also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So instead of grumbling, instead of being upset, instead of dwelling in bitterness and anxiety, what should we do? Well, verse 8 tells us that. Paul says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. We're to think about, we're to meditate on, ponder, dwell on those things. We're to fix our minds on them. All of these other character traits and descriptions that we see, they can only come from God's grace. And if we focus on God's good gifts, then our minds will be filled with peace because these things inspire worship service living for the Lord. So what do we need to do? Well, in your fill-in, I put, we need to four eight that. Number three is we need to four eight that. That's a statement I first heard from Julielle, but I know there's some others at the church who share that. And what it means is that we need to ask ourselves some questions. We need to apply this verse, Philippians 4, 8, to our thoughts. We need to challenge ourselves. Am I thinking the way this verse tells me to think? So let me demonstrate that. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to focus on attitudes of bitterness and anxiety. These are just some I came up with, but we can think about this with really any thought 
that we have. We can 4-8 it. We can go through Philippians 4-8 and see if our thoughts are honoring the Lord. We can apply it to any issue. So if you look on the slide, I've listed these character traits. The first one, he says, is whatever is true, whatever is true, all that deserves serious thought, the things that we know to be true, not that we suspect are true, not that we're pretty sure are true, but that we know are actually true. So if we're thinking about this in terms of bitterness, we may say, that person's not talking to me. They must hate me. Oh, why do they hate me? Oh, they're so upset with me. But if we're going to forate that, we could say, well, is that true? They could be upset with you. Maybe they hate you, but unless they say that, you don't know that. You're assuming that. You need to think about whatever is true that you know to be true. What about something from anxiety? Maybe we're sitting, all of a sudden we cough. <coughs> oh, I coughed. I have COVID-19. Oh my goodness. What's going to happen? What do I need to do next? Okay, so let's forate this. Is that true? Is it true that you have that? You could. It's possible. It's, it's around. It's in our area. But you can't know that from just doing one thing. Wait a while. If you develop more symptoms, then yes, go look. Go have that checked out. But don't worry about it now just from one little thing that happened until you know for sure. So that's true. What about honorable? Whatever is honorable, whatever is noble, whatever is serious-minded, not superficial, not fake, not phony, whatever is the real deal. Let's think about it in bitterness sense. From a bitterness sense, maybe, well, you know what? I'm going to get back at her for what she did to me. Well, let's ask, is that honorable? Is that noble? Do you really need to get back at that person? Or do you need to remember that honor means doing more than what's expected for someone? What about anxiety? We may be in a situation where we know there's something important we have to say, or we know there's a choice. We know what the right choice to make is, but we're very scared about it. God, I'm scared to make that choice. I know it's right, but it scares me. But is your thought honorable? I understand you might be scared, but that's a self-centered fear. What's honorable is obeying God. He says whatever is just, whatever is right, according to God's justice and his ways. Bitterness may say, well, you know what? I deserve to get what I want, and they can't take it from me. Nobody can take from me what I deserve. Okay, but, but is that just in God's eyes? Is that you talking about what you think justice is, or is that God's true justice. What about from anxiety? What if we think, I try to do what's just and right, but it doesn't seem to make a difference. Things just seem to get worse. Does, do the good things I do even matter? Okay, but is that thought you're having, is that just? Is it your fear speaking or is it God's truth when his will will be done? Next word in the list is pure pure. We're talking about moral purity, uprightness according to God's standards. From a place of bitterness, that might be, well, I like this girl, but she doesn't like me, so I'm going to go and look up some pictures or some videos to make myself feel good. Or we may even say, you know, my, my wife, my husband, my significant, significant other is not spending time with me. Well, I'm going to go do something that, that will make me feel good, that will think like someone loves 
and cares for me? I have to ask, is that thought pure? Is that thought pure? It may be upsetting that the person you like doesn't like you or your, your spouse isn't giving you the love, affection you desire. That's upsetting, yes, but it's not an excuse to go sin because that's not a pure thought. From anxiety, it may come from a thing, well, you know what? I don't think anyone will ever love me. I just want to feel good. I want to be loved. And I'm anxious that that's not going to happen. So maybe there's some things that God says aren't good, but I should do that so I can just feel loved. I can feel like someone cares. But is that thought pure? I know it's difficult. It's hard. I'm sorry you are not experiencing that from a person, but that doesn't make it right. That doesn't make it a pure thought. He next says, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, whatever is a fragrant lifestyle, the kind of person you see and you go, wow, I want to be like that person. I want to spend time with that person. From bitterness, we have been a place, that person hurt me. That person did something against me. They said something mean. I hate that person. Well, is that attitude lovely? I mean, maybe in our sarcastic sense, oh, that's a lovely attitude. But no, that's not a lovely, that's not a desirable attitude. That doesn't make you attractive as the what Jesus has done in your heart, in your mind. Or maybe it's from a place of anxiety. I don't like this. I hate this situation. Or I don't like how I'm responding. I hate myself and what I'm doing right now. But is that thought lovely? Is that thought gracious? I'm sorry you feel that way, that you hate that situation or that you struggle with your own actions. But having that attitude does not draw others to know Christ. It doesn't draw others to help you. It's really just abusing yourself, thinking about hating yourself. That is not a lovely thought. He next says, whatever is commendable, admirable, of good repute, good report, things that people speak well of, and particularly what God speaks well of. We may think, well, I know I'm supposed to forgive this person, but I want to stay angry. I have to ask, if we're 480 it, is that commendable that you want to stay angry? You won't be praised for staying angry because God commends forgiveness. It might be from anxiety. You know you have, a, have to have a rough conversation with someone. You're like, I'm, I'm scared about what's going to happen today. I have to confront this person. I have to say this. I just want to stay home and stay away from it where it's safer. I have to ask, is that a commendable thought or an attitude? God calls us to obedience, to choose what is right over what is easy. Two more. He says, if there is any excellence something's excellent, if it has virtue, genuine worth. From bitterness, we may say, well, pastor, I hear you, but everyone gets bitter and angry about this thing. Again, I ask, okay, but is that excellent? Is that excellent? Just because everyone else does that, that doesn't give you permission to think that way either. What if we're thinking about it from anxiety? Well, pastor, everyone is worried about this right now. Okay, but is that an excellent thought? Just because everyone else is worried about it doesn't give you permission to be too. And finally, he says, if anything is worthy of praise or praiseworthy, 
We may try to pull God into our thoughts. And bitterness would be, well, God is God of justice. He would be upset about this too. And yes, he is a God of justice, but is that thought worthy of praise? If you really believe God is a God of justice, you will trust him to bring his justice in his time, in his way. And in the meantime, you'll praise him that he is in control. Or we may say, well, from anxiety, well, God understands my fear. I know I shouldn't be, but God understands it. Yes, but is that thought worthy of praise? Yes, God understands your fear. He cares for you, but that doesn't mean he wants you to stay there. It's so much more for you, greater trust and dependence on him. And I don't want you to misunderstand with all these thoughts. I'm not talking to any specific person or specific situation. These are all thoughts that I've had at one time or another and thoughts that either I should have or I did and I need to for eight, remind myself of what Philippians four eight says. So let me ask you, will you four eight that? Will you examine your thoughts by what this verse says? Because as you do that, then you can also look for right examples right examples. We have a right mindset of joy, consideration, foraging things, and we look at right examples. He says in verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. The Philippians should follow Paul's example. They should pursue God the way that he does. He said this earlier, we talked about this verse last week, Philippians 3.17, brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. He also talks about this in 1 Thessalonians 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk, what you ought to do and to please God, and just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So here we get to the real application of this. We shouldn't just think about what's right, although that's extremely important. That determines what we do, but we shouldn't just think about it. We should actually do it. We need to put into practice the things that honor God, the things described in verse 8. We need to do things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. We think about them and we do them. And we have examples of this. We can get it from the Bible, examples of it. We have examples throughout church history. Examples in our own church of people making the choice to live by the principles in this passage and in Philippians 4, 8. Of course, the best example of this would be Jesus Christ because he did it perfectly. And that's why it's so important that we know and follow him. I talked earlier a bit about what he did, how he lived, died on our behalf. And so I encourage you, if you do not know Jesus, you don't have his peace, you're not following his example, you may try, but you can't do it of yourself because you need a relationship with him. You need to turn from sin, have faith and trust in him. Please ask me or ask someone else about how you can know Jesus Christ. And if we do know Jesus, then we don't just push him to the side. Great, I have Jesus, I'm going to heaven. See you later. No, We look at him. We grow to be more like him. He is the focus of our life. And I have good news. If we do that, God will be with us as we live for him. Through the Holy Spirit, he's with us even now. We don't just get peace. Remember verse 7 talked about the peace of God that 
will guard our hearts and minds. But here in verse 9, it's not just peace. Paul doesn't say practice these things and peace will be with you. No, he says God himself, the God of peace, will be with you. God is with us as we live for him. In 1 Corinthians 14, 33, it says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. That's the God we know. That's the God we're with. Confusion is a word, I think, that describes this time very well. There's not a lot of clear answers on what we should or shouldn't do, how we should or shouldn't respond. And in this confusion, we can be very unsettled. We're not sure if we're doing the right thing or the wrong thing. Some people seem absolutely sure. They know 100% what's right or what's wrong. But I think if we're honest, most of us, we're, we're just not sure. We're confused. We're unsettled. And that's why if we practice what Paul said here, by his spirit relying on Christ, well, then we can know the God of peace. And even when we're not sure what to do, we can fall back on him. We can rely upon him because he is with us and our thinking can honor him. And if our thinking's honoring him, well, then we'll respond in praise because he changed us and we'll worship him because he alone is worthy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that through your son and his work, we can have a restored relationship with you. I pray if anyone doesn't know you, that they will seek out a relationship with you based on your work on the cross, dying for our sin. God, for those of us who know you, I thank you that you can. You've given us the ability to put bitterness, to put anxiety aside, to have a right mindset, to follow right examples, to live for you. Help us this week and every week to forate that, to judge our thoughts by this text. Help us to live in a way that honors you and brings praise to you, not by our power, not by our ability, but by your spirit in us that comes because of the work of your son. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.